Well, uh, I can tell you exactly. It's like Kennedy's assassination. Everybody remembers where they were on that day. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Our interview today is in a different format. Cold War Conversations is working with the Imperial War Museum on a project called Voices of the War. We will be capturing personal testimonies of people's experiences of the Cold War, which will later become part of the podcast. Therefore, this episode will be a composite of previous and unheard interviews of how people heard about the momentous opening of the Berlin Wall 30 years to the date this podcast is published. Now I can see a large increase in listeners of late with some of you binge listening the entire back catalogue. If this podcast was a magazine you wouldn't mind paying a few quid or dollars a week so I'm asking you to support us for the bargain price of $3 a month. In the past few weeks, Anders Olsen, Gregory Morrow, Michael Noble, Bernd Vageg, Mark Vigas, Brian Carroll and Scott Gregory have joined in helping to cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, they've got that sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster heading their way too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. So back to today's episodes, we have some great stories from that momentous day in 1989. Welcome to our Cold War Conversation. This is Janina, who was a 15-year-old living in a village near the Polish border. Um, it was a Thursday night. Um, I came home with my dad from some sort of village meeting um, where people discussing what was happening. Um, and my mum said the wall had come down and we didn't quite believe it because it was not very um, realistic. <laughs> mm. um, but it did and um, the next day in school a lot of people were just not there. Um, I had to go to school unfortunately, my parents didn't let me go off and then I had to go to school as well on a Saturday and there was really barely anyone there. <laughs> This is Victor Grossman, who was a US soldier who defected to East Germany in the 1950s. He continues to live in East Germany through to the fall of the wall and continues to live in Berlin today. I must have been at home. <laughs> it was late at night. I was at home. I had watched on television this announcement by this uh, uh, Shabovsky when he took this paper out of his breast pocket and read it as if he was, was new to him and said, oh, the wall seems to be open. And the journalist said, when? And he said, right now. I saw that on television. I was amazed, of course, like everybody, although I wasn't quite sure that it really would be open. But thousands and tens of thousands of people took him at his word, whether he really meant that immediately or not. They took it that way and flooded the the ex exit uh, uh, stations and just pushed their way out, basically. And uh, for me, this was a, a mixed, very mixed uh, emotion, created very mixed emotions. I might mention that my wife and both sons went the next day, as almost everybody did, to West Berlin 
first thing you did was to go to the bank and get this hundred hundred marks of welcome money so you could buy things. I did not go. And of course, as I say, I had mixed feelings because on the one hand, I could see the rejoicement of so many people who could finally get out as they dreamed, or hardly dared to dream of, and see their relatives and travel, etc., etc. I could see that, and I couldn't be, and uh, it couldn't leave me cold. At the same time, I also see it felt this is the beginning of the end, or not quite the beginning; had been a little sooner. But this is a big step towards the end of the GDR, which which really made me rather uh, maybe sad. This is Gillian Cox, who was a U.S. student traveling around East Germany in November 1989. On the night of the fall of the Berlin Wall, she was in West Berlin, and this is her story. So you were just chilling in West Berlin, and the 9th of November, you're watching TV? Uh, We were actually listening to the radio. Uh, My friend's roommate was in the other room watching the TV and my friend was practicing his English by listening to the BBC and you know, it's like, Oh yes, definitely coming along. That was better. That was better. And (laughs) all of a sudden my friend's roommate comes in from the other room and said, did you just hear that? No. Uh, Christoph over here was practicing his English. Well, let me see if they're going to run it again. And they ran it again. And it was unmistakable. Oh, free travel for East Germans. Oh. So we grabbed our jackets. I grabbed my camera as well. And we just went outside in the direction of the Berlin Wall. And we just... And And were there lots of people on the street at this point? uh, The the streets were starting to fill up and got, I'd say, even more full by the second because everybody was walking out of their apartments. Everybody. Because it was, is this real? Is this real? And we heard the crowds building on the eastern side. And then... I'd say everybody just lost track of time because history was happening and we were all in the thick of it. So where did you head towards? Well, first we headed in the direction of the wall to make sure that this was actually real. And then we just started walking back towards the direction of Kefest and Don and all of that. We now hear from Ancha, who featured in our episode of Cold War Romance. She married a British guy and was travelling across Europe when she heard about the opening of the war. And it was quite late by then, and we were listening to the World Service in in the car. And um, just before, about 20 minutes before we crossed over, or we we reached the French border, they announced on the World Service that they had opened the crossings in in Berlin, that the wall had come down. And what? how how did you feel about that? I don't know. It was just, I couldn't believe it. And for me, oddly enough, the main 
reaction was, God, I went through all this hassle <laughs> and I could have just walked through three days later. Yeah. It was just mainly, really? Yeah. Now? Yeah. And, and, and Tim was a bit annoyed. He said, we've missed the biggest party in Europe by a few days. Um, so yeah, it was, yeah. and, and then, we reached 20 minutes later, we reached the French border and I needed all my, um, all my uh, paperwork be stamped and they needed to see my visa. And so I had to actually go and show my passport. And the guy, the French border guard looked at my passport and he couldn't believe it. And he just said words to the extent of, wow, you were quick because they, they had obviously just heard yeah, what yeah. was going on. And 20 minutes later, he saw his first East German passport yeah. there. He wanted to keep it as a souvenir, but I said, no, I still need yeah. it. Yeah. Phil Logan was a soldier working on the close defence of the Pershing nuclear missile in West Germany. Well, I was actually uh, in uh, Neuel, Germany, back at the barracks, and then the news broke, and we all rushed to a TV set such as they were back then because it was some of us couldn't get German television, but it was covered enough on the American news that we could get. And Cause you know, back then we didn't have the 24 hour news. So we had to like get the breaking news as it came in and it was exciting. It was just unbelievably exciting at that time to see that wall finally come down. Yeah. Yeah. And so were, were you, so, I'm, I'm just interested though, were you lying on your bunk and somebody came in and said, you'll never guess what's happened or. Yeah, that, that's pretty much the way it happened. You know, is no one expected it to happen. And then somebody, cause you know, we had a CQ back then, or I guess they still do have them where the guy just watched the assigned two guys to watch the desk overnight and listen for the phone. And the uh, CQ came around, was telling everybody that was in the barracks, hey, did you hear the walls coming down? And then it's when we all rushed to a TV set. And sure enough, there it was. The world changed overnight. John Green was a British journalist working for East German broadcasting organizations. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I was actually next to the wall on the 9th of November 1989. We, we, we got one of our regular meetings of all the all the colleagues the film colleagues and uh, we were having our meeting there and it was it was clear things were bubbling under the surface but suddenly we heard all these car horns outside and we saw rows of trabants and vartborgs moving towards the border and we realized something must must have happened and that was when the, the wall was opened um and so that was very clear then there was no 
there was no going back to the old GDR. That was that was that was now finished. And what was the immediate reaction of your your colleagues to to that? Was there a mixture of people who were believers and those that thought that reforms needed to happen? I think all my Western colleagues were clear that reforms needed to happen. Um, I think my GDR colleagues were were stunned um, and didn't make any immediate comments. They had they kept their thoughts to themselves, mm. um, but we were very clear that you know things could never be the same again. Um, and so that was yeah. I mean, it was it was a moment mm. of big change in Europe. That yeah. Was clear. Antje Arnold was an 11-year-old girl living in East Germany and the author of the book The Girl Behind the Wall. You were 11 years old when the, the wall falls. How did you become aware of that happening? Yeah, so I actually, you know, went to school with my brother and on a, on a Saturday, and uh, I think it was a Saturday, and there was nobody there. There was like nobody there. There was like a couple teachers, a couple other students, but but nobody really, nobody else. Um, and that's sort of you know the teacher that were there. They were like, okay, you just you know go home. You know the the wall came down type of thing. And so it was it was I didn't really know exactly what that meant. And and you know I I always look back that that there might have been some differences in of the awareness of it, depending on if you lived really close to the border being like the wall being sort of in your face on a regular basis versus like living out in the boondocks, you know, and, and not really seeing that all the time. And, and, um, so my, my, my dad wasn't even home. He was, um, you know, I think he was still like uh, doing something at the police school and, and that sort of thing. And uh, my mom was working at the army at that time. And, it, and so she 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 wasn't really aware of it either. So in a way, it was like a surprise to all of us in a, in a way. But I know some of my friends' parents were apparently right on top of that, <laughs> apparently, because they didn't show up at school that day. Yeah. So so. um so I don't know if my my parents like sort of chose to decided to not pay attention to a lot of the news and and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But um. But basically, you know, my brother and I broke the news to my mom. Wow. And how did she react to that? You know, I think that there was sort of like a confusion and uh, maybe not like really finding that to be true like you know do we believe that do we not believe that so it, it there's a lot in the air I, I felt like you know is this is this is this for real is this temporary uh what do we do because the other thing what happened was that you know we like my mom and they, they were told to not go to West Berlin or West Germany because, you know, they were still working for, you know, like the Volkspolizei and, and the army and you 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 weren't allowed to do that, you know. So so there was a lot of hesitation, confusion and, and, and sort of things. And and I'm like, well, if my parents are confused, then I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. 
Mark Baker was a US journalist working out of Vienna, covering Cold War Eastern Europe, including Prague. Amazing scenes. Can you remember, you know, when you first heard that the that the wall was open? Uh, I, I was in Vienna at the time. I was not in Berlin. Um, I, you know, it was just, uh, uh, you know, obviously an incredible moment. And so uh, my girlfriend at the time in Vienna, we went on the, the 9th to Berlin and we, uh, yeah, on the day of the 9th, and we spent about three or four days there. We couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I was in Vienna. Her, I saw it in the newspaper, saw it on television. And the very next day, we were on the train and going up to Berlin to see it for ourselves. Wow. And and just describe sort of what what it was like, if you can. It it was absolutely amazing to be able to uh, just uh, you know we spent a lot of time in the, on the public transportation system, of course, and riding around through that, and it was just you know yeah it was just a, an amazing party. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I you know. <laughs> Uh, I had just uh, come back from that trip to Prague in which I had interviewed all all those people who told me that change was not going to come to Czechoslovakia. And I had actually written that type of story for our magazine, Business Eastern Europe. And, um, of course, immediately I I felt like I totally missed the story, you know. (laughs) So I guess I was a little bit bittersweet. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that you weren't weren't the only one there. So did you have a... You know, did you actually say to yourself at the time, wow, I'm here in Berlin at such a pivotal moment in history? Or or did you not think it was such a big event? Both, actually. I mean, it was an enormous event. I was, you know, uh, I, I, you know, um, but uh, I, I didn't have the presence of mind to really document it. I mean, it, somehow we were just carried away with events. I, when I look at my pictures of Berlin from that, that time, um, uh, you know, it's just us standing on a, you know, uh, on a, on a train platform or something like that. There's very little of the excitement of the time. So I don't know what I was pointing my camera at, you know, I'm not sure, but no, we were completely aware of the, of the historic moment, uh, of that. I just wish I had more of a presence of mind to have kept better notes, um, to have written really what my impressions were and what I was seeing at the time exactly and what I was thinking about it at the time. Because um, obviously, you know, that's very important for, you know, to, 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 to when you look back on, on, like in our conversation, to be able to have those notes at my disposal and really to be able to tell you exactly what I was thinking. I, I, all I can remember is that I was very excited, you know, taken by su- complete surprise, also professionally. And, um, I think having a pretty good time. Yeah, I was going to say maybe you hit the uh, sect too much, or uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember where we stayed. I don't even really remember how we got up. There. Yeah, well, there you go. Though, that tells you know. a story in itself, Mark. <laughs> Torsten Belger was an East German trainee army officer. And then come the 9th of November and the wall being opened by mistake. Um, didn't know anything about that until three days later. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it, had, because it was wh- only reported on East German television. Three days later. Three days later and that's later, how nobody, you, nobody knew. And that's how you learned about it. Did you actually watch the TV broadcast or did somebody yes. come in and say... I can't remember if I actually physically or personally yeah. watched yeah. The, 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 the TV broadcast. Probably did. 
Yeah. Might yeah, usually tend to, to look at because we, we knew there was something going on, yeah. obviously, and, yeah. and, and, but didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. And until it was, I think it was three days later after, after yeah. the line. So it would have been the 12th. Yeah. 12th or 13th of November that it was officially announced. Right. In, in, in East Germany and in the East German news that, that, you know, that, that basically the, the, the gist was that travel, travel restrictions have been relaxed and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually it transpired that, well, actually they've opened the borders. Yeah. We didn't know that. Right. And they then, deliberately kept us in the dark, of course. You know, so yeah. Well, had, they wanted had, to keep you, uh, how can I put it, ideologically pure, probably. Totally. Or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know. Yes. Yes. Because obviously, well, if we had known that, that, that really was what was going on and really that, that like it was a quite a popular movement, uprising, if you want to call it that, then obviously, well, we might have had second thoughts. Yeah. About going out yeah. there and stopping what was, what was going on. So we didn't have a clue. Anka Holst was from Rostock in East Germany. She was living in Berlin. So I lived in Berlin and I actually lived quite close to the wall in Friedrichshain, which is oh, now, okay. yeah, which is now one. It's also, but now when I look it up and it's like Friedrichshain, Friedrichshain Kreuzberg or, or Kreuzberg Friedrichshain. Yeah. And that those two, those two quarters are now one is just for me still the weirdest thing because I used to be on the different sides of the wall. Yeah. So, uh, it was very close and, um, yeah, strangely, uh, I, I broke my foot on the way to work, uh, a week before the 9th of November. So by the time, uh, the 9th of November came around, I was lying at home with my foot up in a cast at, at my mom's in Rostock. Right. <laughs> but we were all watching that, um, the TV broadcast, obviously, the, the press conference with the Shabrowski and the yeah. thing he said. And, the weird thing is, I don't remember hearing it. I don't remember. I don't remember going crazy about anything in that press conference at all. But clearly, everybody in Berlin went, "Well, we should probably check that out." Did you hear that? Um, yeah, I I don't remember any any kind of from from that press conference any, any yeah. kind of in, yeah. you know instant reaction the, the reaction came the next yeah. morning when we realized what that happened overnight in berlin sabina was 13 years old and living in east berlin her father was a volkspolizei officer the night that happened, um, it was kind of sort of off the cuff the way it's happened because, um, you know, they had that press conference um, where the journalists were asking, did you just say the borders are open? From when are the borders open? When can yeah. people go over? And they said they kind of looked through their papers and went, oh, I think it's now. Yeah, so fort, I think he said, Shabovsky. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and I think a lot of people just, you know, because it was so dangerous to approach the border and so many people had been killed trying to cross it, just I think people were just stunned at first. And then, you know, they started, people started going up to the border and the guards didn't know anything about it and they just had to cave in the end. So it all kind of happened. Um, Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen. And I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. 
Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. Late at night, and yeah. I was not awake by then. And I think my parents were always quite careful anyway about that kind of stuff. So um, the next day um, I went to school and I saw two of my friends walking the way to school, but they didn't have their bags with them. And I said, where are you going? What are you doing? They said, we're going to West Berlin. And I was like, yeah, right. And then they did show up in the end because they were just too chicken to skip school. And yeah. um, and then I thought they just made it up. But then over the next few weeks, um, more and more people were missing or didn't come back to school. or And that sort of, I mean, we were, by then, obviously, we were aware that the wall is open. But we were still unsure about what was going to happen, how we were meant to behave, especially the teachers. You know, yeah. are we now still following the rules to the letter or is that changing? And it was quite an uncertain time because we just didn't know what was going to happen. Are they going to close the wall again? And, you know, and if you now show some sort of enthusiasm about the wall being down and they put the wall back up, will that have negative consequences for you? Michael Rafferty was a U.S. soldier serving at Checkpoint Charlie on the momentous day that the wall opened. I was watching AFN, so I was just sitting there watching watching TV when they said that the travel restrictions were being lifted. Now, during that time, there was a lot of uh, movement into Hungary and Czechoslovakia and people were going around about to get out of East Germany. And so I didn't really think anything of it. I called down to the checkpoint, Nate Brown, Staff Sergeant Brown, who is a senior uh, NCOIC down there. Mm-hmm. I said, Nate, is there anything going on? He said, nope, it's pretty boring. And I said, okay, well, I'll be there to relieve you at six in the morning. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll see you then. Now, it was Veterans Day, so we were expecting a whole ton of veterans to come up. It was a four-day weekend, so not just veterans, but soldiers coming up because they had a four-day weekend, so Mm -hmm. we were expecting it to be busy anyways, and when I I got there at six in the morning, I was briefed on the way down there that it was a mess, and I got to Nate, and I said, you told me nothing was going on. He just shrugged his shoulders and looked at me like I was crazy. He didn't even say any, anything to me. He said, it's all yours. So it's just like this human onslaught, you know, this avalanche of humanity coming through the checkpoint. If you've ever sat next to a Trabi, the Trabi has a distinctive smell. Yeah. And, and it would idle right next to the checkpoint door. Lovely. <laughs> and, and you do that for 12 hours, you're not feeling so hot. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was not feeling so hot after, after the completion of that day it was pretty yeah. bad and did any of the east germans that came over speak to you oh many many what, they what were they up. what were they saying mainly it was it was a drunken happiness it was just uh you know a lot of them were just happy mm-hmm. you know you get 
strange hugs, you know, and it wasn't like, you know, thank you for being, it wasn't, they didn't really know about it. You know, it was just, they were just happy to be over. Yeah. And they, they went to the first thing they did was they got their money at the bank because each one of them got a hundred Westmarks. Yeah. They called it a freedom money or I'm not sure, but there was long lines at the bank to get that money. And then they went and had, had a day and they all went back. Yeah. You know, their, their homes were in the East. They just wanted the ability to travel. They wanted the ability like everybody else is to get around and, and to do their thing. But those first five or six days were just a, a total nightmare for all four of the NCYCs. There were four of us. So it was, it was pretty rough. Colin Munro was the deputy head of mission at the British Embassy to East Germany. Well, uh, I can tell you exactly. It's like Kennedy's assassination. Everybody remembers where they were on that day. Uh, I was at a conference in the Reichstag, in West, which is just over the border in West Berlin. And it was one of these there were endless meetings and discussions and visits and goodness knows what. And anyway, this, uh, I think there were a whole lot of Bundestag deputies from West Germany there. And, uh, and we were having a drink at the end of the conference and the host, the Minister for Inner German Relations, Frau Dorothea Wilms, was giving a nice little speech from a, from a lectern. And then somebody came into into the to our to the room and handed her a note, and she said, well, "I think you're going to all be very interested in this. This is what Gunter Schabowski has just said at the press the press conference in East the evening press conference in East Berlin, uh, sort of about 500 meters away at the press center. And I've never seen journalists part company with their drinks so fast in all my life." And so we all rushed off to our uh, sort of to our stations to find out what was going on. And in my case, that meant driving back home over Bornholmer Strasse. I was pretty tired. Anyway, I thought I'll, I'll go via Bornholmer Strasse anyway, as usual, and I'll ask the folks what's going on. So I got to Bornholmer Strasse. This must have been about oh about quarter to eight or something. And there were a few people, a few more than normal, sort of milling around on the eastern side of the wall. I said, what's going on? What's this stuff about Shabowski? And I said, we haven't heard anything. You know, nobody tells us anything. And so I went, I went home and I told my wife what was going on. And we thought, well, we'll switch on the telly and see what's going on. And we were completely exhausted, I have to tell you. Uh, so we watched Heute Journal at quarter to ten, and they said the crowds were growing, but there was still no sign. The wall wasn't open or anything like that. So we went to bed, and uh, the whole thing blew up at 10.30. And uh, my wife, for sunny years or something, she got up in the middle of the night and uh, switched on the telly and saw these amazing, these amazing scenes. One of one member of the embassy had actually uh, sort of stayed up all night and had gone with the flow and all the rest of it. It was absolutely, I mean, it's just just 
just amazing. And it, and it was, and I mean, it was absolutely miraculous that it all happened. So that it all happened peacefully, not a shot was fired. Nobody was in. And, and then of course, over the subsequent weekend, the, the way, you know, German efficiency, everybody got their big guilt, a hundred marks on the first night. They all got free beer. And um, some of them got the gruesome scale several times over, I have to tell you. Alastair took up a teaching post in Halle, East Germany, in August 1989. One of the things I wanted to do when I went to East Germany was to learn Russian, because I'd always wanted to learn it. I never had the opportunity at school. I didn't have the opportunity at the university in London. So I thought, oh, if I'm going to East Germany then surely there must be ways that I can learn Russian there. So I've hooked into the local um, evening school. It was a school, you know, a regular state school that offered uh, classes for adults in the evening. And I found lots of Russian courses there. So I just signed up to a Russian course uh, and I went there. And I think there are about 15 of us in the class, you know, 14 East Germans and me. There was a German teacher who taught Russian. Um, we, it was really interesting to talk to some of the others because they could not understand where a British person would be in East Germany learning Russian of an evening. <laughs> yeah, they must have definitely uh, thought you were a card-carrying member of... They, <laughs> well, they thought I was something. Anyway, and there was, there was one elderly man there who was so nice... And he came up to me after the first lesson and spoke a little bit of English. Actually, you know, I, I do speak fluent German, but he spoke English. He'd been a prisoner of war in the Second World War in Yorkshire. And he'd had the time of his life, he said, uh, at this prisoner of war camp in Yorkshire. Oh, wow. Um, and there was a picture in the classroom of Erich Honecker, then um, leader of the SED, on the wall, as there was in every classroom. Mm. Um, and so I must have gone to these Russian lessons once or twice a week for about six weeks. And then maybe in the seventh week, I was walking home and I met a student of mine from the university and he just came up to me and said, you'll never believe what's going on. Have you seen the television? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, they've said that the Berlin walls come down, that they're letting everybody through. So you know, rushed home to the television and then saw, saw all the news uh, about what was happening. And then I went back to my Russian class the following week and the portrait of Erich Honecker had disappeared. And was Egon Krentz in its place? No, it wasn't. Uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Things were moving at such a pace then. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. It, um, there was no logical order to it, you know. Yeah. And what what was the next day like in Halle after that news of <clears throat> the the Berlin Wall opening? All I remember is lots of people on the trams with huge bottles of champagne singing. That's all I remember. There's more information on this episode and our other Berlin Wall episodes in our show notes, which can be found as a link in your podcast app. If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. 
If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where guests and listeners continue the Cold War conversation. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.